James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not a but someone will say, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one good, God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Hey everyone. Isn't it fantastic taking church out of the hub and on the road into people's houses? You know, from the, from the beginning since COVID first started, I have been saying, I want to preach, before COVID ends, I want to preach a sermon from my bed wearing my jammies in the dressing gown. The kids can bring me in my breakfast in bed as I'm preaching. We can all, that's when, that's when we know that COVID has kind of reached its maximum devastating impact, isn't it? Look, today we're, we're looking at a bit of the Bible today that has caused more controversy than almost any other part of, at least the, certainly the New Testament, because it really drills into something that we're incredibly afraid of. One of the things that Christians are really afraid of is when we find bits of the Bible that disagree with each other. The parts of the Bible that just, you can't make them work together. We kind of saw a little bit of that last week in question time. Remember in question time, we looked and saw that there are some bits of the Bible that say we need to obey the whole of the Old Testament law and other bits that seem to say that the law is now obsolete. And we wrestled with how do we hold those two together? And look, this is incredibly hard for Christians because we have placed our trust in God's word. We've, we've bet our lives on this. No, actually, we've bet our eternity on this. And so when we find that there are two parts of the Bible, the book that we've based our whole life on that don't agree with each other, it is incredibly unsettling. And you know what's even more unsettling? Is when they disagree on how we get to heaven. When the Bible seems to say two different things about how Christians are saved, that is incredibly unsettling. And that's actually the case with our passage today. The bit of James that we're looking at today seems to go against the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament is really clear in saying that Christians are saved by faith in Jesus alone. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast. That couldn't be clearer, could it? 
Or Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible's really clear. To get to heaven, all you need to do is have faith in Jesus Christ. And yet look at our passage today. Look at James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And the answer he's looking for is no. Or down in 2 verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. It looks here like James is saying something that goes against the whole of the rest of the New Testament. Everything that we taught, everything that we hold most dear on the most important topic of all. Is he doing that? Well, certainly Martin Luther, the great reformer, thought that he was. Very famously, Martin Luther called James the epistle of straw because there's no substance to it. There's no meat to it. There's no, there's no solidity to it. And in fact, when Martin Luther came to draw up his list of books in the Bible, he excluded James based on this passage. You see, what we're talking about today really matters because it comes down to can we trust the Bible and even more than that, how are we going to get to heaven? If the Bible is confused at this point, can we trust it anywhere? And so let's jump in and really carefully read what James is going to say. And the first thing that we want to see is James is introducing us to a hypothetical person here with a hypothetical issue. So have a look in verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Now, for the moment, this is a hypothetical person. It's just someone who claims to have faith, but they don't have deeds. And I want you to notice two things about it. Firstly, James only says that this person claims to have faith. He doesn't admit that he does have faith. Now, this is going to be important later. The second important thing to get there is that the word deeds is actually the word works. Right throughout this passage, James keeps using the word works and the NIV translates it in a couple of different ways. So in verse 14, they'll translate it as deeds. In verse 17, they'll translate it as action. In verse 18, they'll translate it as deeds again. But every time, it's just the word works, which raises a question for us. What does James mean by works? What's he talking about? Well, to get that, we do kind of need to understand the, or at least have a bit of a look through the rest of James. James has just in chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, just been talking about not showing favoritism, hasn't he? And so you get the feeling that that's got to be in the back of his mind, not showing favoritism. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, James said, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so it looks like deeds there or works is to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to not be polluted by the world. Going back a bit further in chapter 1, verse 22, James said, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Really, when James is talking about works, what he's talking about is obedience. Obedience to God's word. 
And so from now on, whenever we come across the word works or deeds or actions in James chapter 2, if you think in your mind he's talking about obedience to God's word, you won't go far wrong. So what we have here is a fellow, a hypothetical person, who claims to have faith but does not obey God's word. But look, that raises another question for us, doesn't it? What kind of disobedience are we talking about here? Are we talking about even one sin? The, the, the one word that slips out, uh, the, the one time where you lose control, that moment of weakness or temptation. Is James saying just one sin and I'll go to hell? Is that what he's talking about? Or is he talking about maybe the person who really genuinely struggles with a sin and feels deeply repentant, but just is weighed down by it and just is regularly defeated by it. So they're sincere. They really hate their sin, but they're struggling with something, a person who's struggling with something like bitterness and and forgiving someone, struggling with greed, struggling with purity with our eyes. Really, we're all like that to some degree, aren't we? There's a sincere desire to love and serve God, and there's a real heartbrokenness about our sin but there is also a, a kind of regular failing. And we hate it, but it, it's part of the Christian life. Is that what James is talking about? No, I don't think so. James says it's the person who has no works, no deeds, no obedience. That is, I think he's talking about the person who is okay with their sin. It's the person who says, I don't need to be obedient to God because I have faith. And look, we've all met people like that, haven't we? In fact, met people. I used to be exactly like that. For the first year and a half, two years of my Christian walk, really it had almost no effect on my lifestyle at all. I was still going out and getting drunk. I was still doing a whole bunch of things that I shouldn't do. But I figured that because I had placed my faith in Jesus, I was fine. I'd done that one thing that actually counts. I'd put my trust in Jesus, I had faith in him, and I was like, okay, that means it doesn't actually matter what I do. That's the person I think that James is talking about here. The person who says, I have faith, therefore I don't need obedience to get to heaven. And James asks a really key question. Is that kind of faith enough? Is that kind of faith saving faith? And in fact, the key word that James uses in verse 14 is the word such. Have another look in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no obedience or deeds, can such faith save them? James is saying, is a faith that's okay with not being obedient. Is a faith that, that says, I don't need to be obedient to God. Is that kind of faith a saving faith? Is that kind of faith real at all? And James's resounding answer is no. It's not real faith. In verse 17, James will call that a dead faith. Really, he highlights two big problems with it. The first one is, if I say that I have faith, but I don't have obedience, 
my actions are proving my words false. If I say that I have faith, but don't have obedience, my actions are proving my words false. So look what he says in verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it is not accompanied by action or obedience, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Now think about the situation that James paints there. You're walking along the street and you see someone in desperate need. They're destitute. They have no food. They have no clothes. If I say to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed. What are my words saying? I want you to have peace. I want you to be warm. I want you to be well fed. I care about you is what my words are saying. But if I don't do anything about their warmth, their needs, their clothes, my words and my, my actions prove my words false. My actions show that I don't actually care about your warmth, your food or your peace at all. My actions prove my words false. And so let's think about the person who says, I have faith, but who doesn't then obey. My words say, I trust God. Because that's all faith is. Faith, you know, isn't actually a particularly religious word at all. It's just an ordinary word from the first century for trust. That's the common everyday word for the word trust. It's exactly what you are showing in your lounge right now. You walk up to a lounge and you think to yourself, is this trustworthy? If I sit on it, will it stand up? Will it actually support my weight? It's trust. That's what faith is. If I say I trust God, what am I saying? Well, I'm saying I trust that he exists. I trust that this God loves me. I trust that Jesus died in my place, paying for my sins. I trust that God knows what's good for me better than I do. I trust that God's commands to me are good and will actually lead to a better life. That's what I'm saying when I trust God, isn't it? If I never obey God, what do my actions say? Well, far more loudly than my words, my actions say, I don't trust God at all. My actions prove my words false. Because if I really did believe that God exists, and if I really did believe that he'd save me from sin, and if I really did believe that God's words were true and right and good, I would obey them. It's like going to a doctor, isn't it? I have the flu. I'm not sure whether it's COVID. Or I don't actually have the flu. You don't have to avoid me. But hypothetically, I have the flu. I'm not sure. I'm sick. I go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, I want you to do these three things. I want you to go to the chemist. I want you to get these drugs and I want you to go and spend the rest of the week in bed. And I say, I trust you. If I then don't go to the chemist, don't get any drugs, don't spend the rest of the week in bed, but in fact, I just keep doing all the normal things. What do my actions say about my words? They show that my words are false. 
See, look what James says in verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. How can you tell if my words are true when I say that I trust Jesus as my saviour? You will see my words in action. Obedience is the fruit of faith. And unless faith brings forth obedience, that faith doesn't exist. The reason faith without deeds is dead in verse 17 is because faith without obedience does not exist. See, when you think about it, faith is a really relational thing. It's trust in God as a person. When I trust God, I'm trusting his goodness. I'm trusting his promises. I'm trusting his authority. I'm trusting his words. And if I don't obey him, I don't trust him. Which leads to the second thing that's wrong with this hypothetical person. They're confusing trust with intellectual assent. They're confusing trust with intellectual assent. So look in verse 19. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You see, the person who believes in one God is actually doing something great. They're believing in something that's true. Intellectual assent is a really good thing. Saying this is true. I believe it to be true. That's false. I believe that to be false. That's actually a really good thing. But it's not trust. It comes back to that idea of a relationship, isn't it? Trust is a relationship. It's where I rely on you. I depend on you. And being a Christian is about trust in God. It's different to intellectual assent. That is, I can believe that there is a God intellectually. I can believe that Jesus died on the cross intellectually. I can believe that the Bible is true intellectually. But I can keep all of those things at arm's length from me. The Christian says, Jesus is my God. The Christian says, Jesus died for me on that cross. The Christian says, the Bible is my true guide. These are personal truths. That's what trust is. It's different to intellectual assent, isn't it? As James says, even the demons can give intellectual assent to the idea that there is one God, but it doesn't mean they're saved. It doesn't mean that they actually have faith in this one God. It doesn't mean that they love and serve this one God. That's why they shut up. They know the truth, but they've done nothing about it. And in fact, the demons are closer to God than the person who says, I trust him, but don't obey him, because at least the demons are shuddering about it. Do you see what James is doing here? He's helping us to understand what real faith is, real living faith, as opposed to dead faith. Dead faith is intellectual assent. Dead faith is words that are then denied by my actions. Real living faith is trust in the person of Jesus, trust in the person of God, more than just empty words and more than just intellectual assent. It's trusting God as my Lord, my master, my saviour, and that will change my life, won't it? Because relationships change our lives. 
And if my trust in God in Jesus does not change my life, then James will say, you have a dead trust. No trust at all. You either have empty words or intellectual assent. You see, James actually isn't disagreeing with Paul here at all. James does believe that we're saved by trusting Jesus. We saw that last week. Remember last week, James talked about the law that brings freedom. And what was the law that brought freedom? Mercy. That's how we're saved. We're saved by mercy. Well, have a look in chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. You see, salvation in that passage is a gift given to us by God. It comes through new birth. God's word comes to us and by the Holy Spirit, we are born again. James believes that we are saved through grace by trusting Jesus. But he also knows that a real faith always produces obedience. And funnily enough, you know, Paul believes the same thing. Paul believes that real faith produces obedience too. So remember earlier, we looked at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How are we justified? We're justified through faith. Look what he says in Romans 16 in the same letter. He'll say, God's secret is now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. Paul knows that real faith produces obedience. If I really trust God, if I trust that he's there, that he saved me, that he loves me, I'll obey him. It's the same in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that wonderful, famous passage where Paul says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourself. It's the gift of God. So wonderful, isn't it? But not by works, so that no one can boast. And what's the very next thing he says? For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In the very same passage, that Paul says, we are saved by faith, not by work, so that no one can boast. In the very same passage, in the very next sentence, he says, why? So that we can do good works. Because that's why God saved us. That's what God saved us to. You see, Paul and James are not opposed to each other. They're not on different pages here about how we get to heaven. Paul and James are saying exactly the same thing. Exactly the same wonderful truth that having been saved by faith, that saving faith will transform our lives. Now, look, at this point, James, when he, when he wants to prove his point, it'd be lovely if he could have just pointed to Paul, wouldn't it? The thing was, when James wrote, he didn't have Paul's letters. Most of the Paul's letters he hadn't even written yet. But James is very keen to prove his point. He is very keen to show us that this is what the scripture says. And so James proves his point to us from the Old Testament. 
And he gives two fantastic examples of faith and obedience walking hand in hand. The first one is Abraham, the man of faith. So look what James says in verse 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for his obedience when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So James says that Abraham was considered righteous because he offered his son Isaac on the altar in Genesis 22. And you know the story, don't you? Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I'll show you. And the amazing thing about Abraham was he went and he did it. He took Isaac up onto a mountain and he got out his knife. And then just at the last moment, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now, that I, know, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son, and Isaac is saved. And James says, wasn't Abraham considered righteous because of that moment on the mountain? Because of his act of obedience. Now, what's strange about James saying that? Have you spotted it? God didn't declare Abraham righteous at that moment in Genesis 22. He'd already declared Abraham righteous seven chapters earlier in Genesis 15. When God made promises to Abraham and Abraham believed him. You know the passage. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And God took Abraham outside and said, Look up at the sky. And count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. See, God declared Abram righteous long before Abram went up on that mountain. God declared Abram righteous at that moment when he had faith in his promises. So why does James say God considered Abram righteous when he went to sacrifice his son Isaac? Well, have a look at James chapter 2, verse 22. You see, Abraham's faith and his obedience were working together. And his faith was made complete or perfected by his obedience. You see, God made Abraham a promise back in Genesis 15. You will have children and they're going to come through your son Isaac. And that faith came to its perfection, its perfect fruit. It was completed, if you like, in Genesis 22. Abram believed God in Genesis 15 and he never stopped believing him. He never stopped trusting God. He trusted that God knew what he was doing and he obeyed him. In fact, you even see Abram's trust in Genesis 22. Because as they're walking up the mountain... Isaac actually asks Abraham, what's going on? I think I would have too. He says, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. 
Father, the wood and the fire are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? It's a good question, isn't it? Abram answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. You see, Abram expected that God would provide him with a sacrifice. Because he had God's promise back in Genesis 15 that he would have children and that they would come through Isaac. God said as many children as the stars. And sure, now God was asking Abram to do the unthinkable. He was asking Abram to do something that Abraham could not understand, but he trusted God. And that trust was made complete in the act of obedience. That trust was expressed in obedience. Obedience is the fruit of the tree called trust. See, one of the key things to realize here is James is not saying that we need works or obedience alongside our faith. Sometimes Christians will say that. You've got to have obedience and you've got to have faith. James isn't saying that we need two things to be saved. James is saying obedience is is the completion of faith. Obedience flows out of faith. So look how. James describes faith and obedience in verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith or trust without deeds is dead. Like a body and spirit, like a tree and its fruit, like the sun and the light, one expresses the other. Works don't stand alongside faith. They flow from it. They're the perfection, the completion, the fruit of faith. Now, I haven't got time to go into it, But Rahab is exactly the same. So look in verse 25. James says, In the same way, wasn't even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? So James points out Rahab's obedience. What was Rahab's obedience? Well, the spies came into Jericho where she was a citizen and she gave lodging to Israel's spies. And she sent them off in a different direction to the soldiers. So she was obedient to God. Why? Why did she obey? Well, she actually says back in Joshua 2. In Joshua 2, she says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. And the spies say, our lives for your lives. The men assured her. If you don't tell where we're going, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. There is a clear promise there from the spies, from the representatives of the Lord and she believes that promise and so she obeys. You see, the great teaching of James chapter 2 is this wonderful thing that we are saved by faith alone. But faith is never alone. Faith always expresses itself, bears the fruit of obedience. So what are we going to do with James 2? Now that we've understood it, now that we've understood that the Bible isn't actually at odds with each other and conflicting, what do we do with this? Well, one of the things that we don't want to do is what Luther did. And just leave it out of our Bible. Let me me give you two ways that James can really help us. One is this passage gives us confidence in the Scriptures. 
It gives us confidence that the Bible is actually true. See, for the rest of your Christian life, there will come times when the Bible will seem to be at odds with itself. This passage will seem to disagree with that passage and the temptation is to do what Luther did, just to iron out the differences, pretend I haven't seen it, push it off into the corner and it is not worth following up. Can I say, that is always the wrong thing to do. Because if the Bible is not true, it is not worth following. If the Bible isn't a united whole, then it is not the Word of God. It isn't the Scriptures that we can base our eternity on. It's just a purely human document. Can I say, the Bible can stand up to your scrutiny. God's Word can stand up to the questions. And so when you find those parts of Scripture that you just can't see how they fit together, don't push it off to one side. Dig in. Work really hard to understand what the passage is saying. Work hard to understand its context. Work hard to understand how the whole book that that passage is written in hangs together. And then work hard to see how these ideas are dealt with in the Bible. When you find those points where the Bible seems to be at odds with itself, chase it. Pursue it. This really matters. It matters because it is the Word of God. And we honour God by understanding what he said, by taking it really seriously, by loving enough to not allow loose ends to be hanging in our minds. But you know, that actually leads to the second way James can help us. Because James chapter 2 points out a danger that we really, really have. And that's the danger of intellectual assent. The danger of treating the Bible as a mental exercise, a theological exercise, an intellectual exercise and knowing it, but not actually having trust in God. And funnily enough, it's a danger that churches like ours can often fall into. Because we love the Bible, don't we? We call ourselves Hunter Bible Church. Why? Because we love the Bible. We believe it's God's Word. And we're the ones who really want to work it right, work out what it's saying and get it right, even to the point where we're willing to say that someone as great as Martin Luther actually got it wrong. And funny, funny enough, it's astounding how often, when you read church history, it's astounding how often even the great ones, like Luther and Calvin and so on, got it wrong, because we're all human, right? But you see, we live in this incredible time of blessing. We live in a time of blessing where the Bible is available to us in our own language. That was not the case for much of Christian history. We have so many Bibles and we've got so many different translations. We have got great Bible colleges. We've got the internet, which means that we've got all these different points of view and all these different resources of all the generations of Christians who have ever lived. We have more opportunity to get the Bible right and to really understand it than almost anyone who's lived before us. The danger is that we can confuse getting the Bible right, intellectual assent, with real trust. The danger is that we can become a church that can explain predestination and human responsibility, that can pull apart the idea of the Trinity and we can run nights talking about it and we can explain the resurrection and we can explain suffering and we can talk about all of these things. We can understand how our culture has impacted Christianity and how Christianity has changed the culture of our world. But none of that means that we actually trust Jesus, does it? It doesn't mean that we actually trust God 
It doesn't mean that we read the Bible and then do what it says. It doesn't mean that we help the poor and the needy. It doesn't mean that we put aside sexual immorality. It doesn't mean that we then become generous with our time and our money and our resources and serving each other and evangelizing our friends. You see, we can all say, there is one God. Some of us can even say, well, you know, he got that from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Even the demons can do that. And the demons know enough to shudder. Let's be a church that has intellectual assent, that really does care about getting the Bible right, but which matches it with trust. This word that I believe is true is true for me too. Let's be a church that's as passionate about obeying our God, obeying the one that we trust as we are in knowing his word. Let's fight the temptation to mediocrity when it comes to obedience. You know that danger of in the Christian life, especially as you go on for a while, to kind of settle for a mediocre version of obedience. I kind of get rid of sexual immorality. I kind of get rid of greed. I kind of get rid of foul language. I kind of do everything in my Christian life. And I look really respectable. And people see me giving intellectual assent to all of the right ideas. But I actually have a really insipid trust in God. You see, the obedience that flows from trust is a restless obedience, isn't it? It's a never-ceasing desire to eradicate sin from my life. Because when I really do believe that God is good and that God loves me and that God has saved me and that God's word is a lamp to my feet, that, that ought to generate in my heart a ceaseless desire to walk in that word and to obey the God who loves me and to walk in the works that he has saved me to do from Ephesians chapter 2. When was the last time you agonized over sin? It's easy in a quiet time, isn't it, to kind of go, hmm, yep. I can see what God's word is saying here. I can understand the three points that Paul is making. And clearly I need to do something about that in my life. But just about now I've got to get on and do some work. So easy to have that kind of quiet time, isn't it? But to stop and consider what is the effect of what I'm doing. How does this displease God? And what is the kind of person I want to be? When was the last time you agonized over obedience to God? Now look, for some of us, that's all the time, isn't it? There are some people whose hearts and consciences are so tender. Look, if you, that's what I want you to hear is you are saved by trust in Jesus alone. Cling to Jesus. Cling to that trust in Jesus. But if that's you, you need to hear that you are in the minority. Because for most of us, obedience can become a routine. It can become a mediocre and passionless habit. Obedience can become me jogging away from sin instead of fleeing it. Look how James describes obedience in verse 26. He says it's like the spirit is to our bodies. It's like the breath is to our lungs. Godliness is a passion for obedience. 
Let's be the kind of church that really longs after that. Let's be the kind of church that really hungers for and desires and strives towards obedience, not because that's how we think we'll be saved, but because that's what we have been saved to. In James's language, let's be a church that doesn't merely listen to the word and so deceives ourselves, but does what it says. And then we'll be blessed in everything we do. Will you pray with me? Let's pray that we'll be that kind of church. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are real, that you are God. We praise you that you sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins on the cross. We don't merely give intellectual assent to these ideas. We place our trust in them. When we stand before you to be judged for all eternity, our reliance is on Jesus. Our dependence is on Jesus. We point to him and not to our works. We trust him and him alone. But we pray that our trust in him would extend to every part of our life. That would extend to trusting him with our bodies, trusting him with our money, trusting him with our relationships, trusting him with our words. We pray that you would protect us from the kind of hypocrisy which says, I trust Jesus, but when all of our actions say that we don't. Please, we pray, help us to have more than intellectual assent. Help us to not be the kind of church that can explain all of the different words for the cross, justification, propitiation, sanctification, but doesn't have a personal experience of the cross where we really do trust Jesus. And we pray for us also that when we come across those parts of your scripture which seem to us to disagree with each other, help us not to quietly lay them aside but to pursue them. Thank you that we're part of a church, that we can put our questions to each other, that we have so many resources. We pray that we would honour your word by seeking to know it as well as we can. And then please empower us by your Holy Spirit to obey it. Amen.